Morning, everybody. Morning. It got really quiet. I guess you anticipated what was about to happen. Um, today you are, yes. <laughs> um, hymn 607, 607, stanzas 1, 4, and 5. From depths of war, I cry to thee in trial. pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week from Psalm 51. Let's speak this together. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived. Okay. I was brought forth in iniquity. Brought forth means that you enter into the world as a sinner. But not only that, and above, in sin my mother conceived me. Not only do you enter the world as a sinner, but you are in the womb as a sinner. Why is it that you are brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin? Because the... Pardon me? Your parents are sinful. Okay, your parents are sinful. That's good, and you're, you say something, but you don't realize what you've said. Well, they inherit sin just like we. Which parents are sinful? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Yes, your parents are sinful. And that means two things. Yes, your mother and your father of flesh and blood are sinful because they too were conceived and born in sin. But your true parents, your first parents, Adam and Eve, are sinners. And in the flesh of Adam, which is the flesh that you all bear, the sin of Adam remains. In one man, all mankind has fallen. So as Adam falls, so too are you brought into the world already having, falled, uh, already having fallen like your father. Uh, you are inbred. Or rather, your sin is inbred. 
So you talk about who the old Adam is. Well, he's sort of an inbred character. Your sin is inbred and it dwells within. Okay? Let's speak this uh, again together. Behold, Behold I will draw forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Yes, good. What is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that these have given all to us by grace. For we believe this in our and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. There's a lot to talk about here. The first thing that I want to point out to you is that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pray, you pray, pardon me, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. Uh, and Luther highlights this in saying, so we too will forgive. And not only that, but will sincerely forgive. So it isn't like when you're growing up and your kids and your parents tell you, apologize to your brother or apologize to your sister, and you go, sorry. That's insincere because you don't want to apologize and you don't think you need to. But you, according to the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, will sincerely, from the bottom of your heart, forgive all who trespass against you because you have received forgiveness. It's like the parable of the wicked, uh, the wicked servant who is forgiven his massive debt and then goes out to the courtyard and shakes down his fellow servant for a pittance. And the master says, as I had mercy on you, should you not also have had mercy? To receive mercy means that you also give mercy. That's the natural flow of faith. To receive is also to give. To receive love is to give love. To receive forgiveness is to give forgiveness because you follow Jesus. Okay? The other thing is this. Uh, you pray that God would not look at your sins, but also that he wouldn't deny your prayer. That he wouldn't look at you for who you are. That's the thing in Christianity. You never want God to look at you for who you are, because if God looks at you for who you are, you are in trouble. Instead, you want God to look at you uh, according to who you are made to be in Christ. So that when he looks at you, he doesn't see you for who you are, but he sees you for who Christ has made you to be. That he doesn't look at you and see, Bill the sinner, but Jesus Christ my son. And you are in my son, which means you're just as much my son as my son. To be in Christ is to put on Christ. Uh, and then finally, we are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. Yes, it's absolutely true. This all falls in with who you are versus who you're made to be. You're not worthy to pray. You're not worthy to say, our Father. You're not worthy to call him Father. But in Christ, you're made worthy. Christ makes you worthy. Christ makes you of such that the Lord is joyfully able to interact with you, to hear your prayers, to answer your prayers, to forgive your sins. Um, you daily sin much. What should this... Uh, Lastly, what should this bring to mind? Daily sin much. Yes. What part of the catechism do you hear that? Daily repentance. Daily sin much. Yes, somebody said baptism, and I don't know who it is, but I'm going to give you credit. It must have been the Holy Spirit. Oh, it was my wife. Oh. <laughs> She wasn't a plant, uh, but it is baptism. Because the old man is how often drowned and, and killed? Daily. daily, yes. So you daily sin much, you daily repent. Where's the other uh, part that you hear daily? 
Yes, daily bread. So remember last week when we talked about daily bread, I told you that it doesn't only mean just these things of the body because there's also a spiritual component. Well, look at this. If you daily sin much, does your spirit perhaps need a little bit of daily bread in the things that's going to take care of it? Uh, Repentance, daily absolution, trust in the forgiveness of sins, a little bit of Jesus every day. Okay, what's good for the body is good for the soul. What's good for the soul is good for the body. Soul and the body are together. Daily sin much, daily need forgiveness. And then you daily give forgiveness. Questions? Uh, a point. Yes. Um, I had an English teacher that would like to use this passage because I, what little I remember about English was one point, and that was the difference between shall and will. And here they use the will, and she made the point that will shows determination. You will do this. Shall denotes kind of a questioning. You shall. Will you do this? But will shows the determination here. Here the passage is showing the determination. You will forgive your brother's sin. Yes, exactly. Like when your father says to you, you will be in church on Sunday. It's not a question. (laughs) Okay, children, away with you. (laughs) So... Here's the plan for today. I want to finish up this whole introduction to the piety traditions of Lent so that not next week, next week's a hymn Sunday, but the week after that we can start diving into the things that we do and talk about why we do them and where they come from and what everything means. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing that. So we need to finish up this talk about piety versus pietism and what it means and where it all comes from. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament reading for this, for today. And the reason I want to talk about it now is because I'm so excited with the discovery as I was going through the text this week. And it was something that couldn't make it into the sermon just because it, you can only really focus on one little tiny bit in a sermon. And this just didn't make the cut. But I want to tell you now so that you know what to look for when you're hearing the readings. Um, And in fact, why don't we just turn there really quickly. It's 1 Samuel. I think 1 Samuel. Yes, 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. Yeah, David is anointed king. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. I just want to read you a little bit of this. Let's go... Starting at verse... The end of verse 5 into verse 6. Then he, that is Samuel, consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at uh, Eliab... And said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. That's something for Sunday too. The gospel is Jesus giving sight to blind Bartimaeus. There's a lot of talk about seeing. The Lord does not see as man sees. Keep that in your head as you enter into the sanctuary for the readings. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he, that is Jesse, said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. That's where we're going to stop. Because there's something really, 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 really cool and something really, really important about the sons that pass by. How many sons pass by? Seven. Seven. Yes. But how many sons remain? One, which means how many sons total? Eight. Which means David is the which son? The eighth son. Mm -hmm. Now we talk a lot about the number seven 
being an important number. And it is an important number. God rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath. The seventh day is the day that you come here and Jesus gives you a little bit of rest. He brings you the picnic basket and feeds you a little bit of supper, dusts you off and gets you ready to keep on trucking. But the number eight is also just as important as the number seven and perhaps even more so. Go into the sanctuary and count the number of sides on the baptismal font if you've never done it. How many sides are there? Eight. That's not accidental. Eight sides in the baptismal font is very much intentional because the eighth day is the day of the resurrection. The eighth day is the day of new life, of new birth. So Jesus in the flesh is the eighth day. Jesus rises on the third day, which is also the eighth day. Baptism is an entrance into the eighth day, the day of resurrection and new life. So when you look at this in Samuel and see that there are seven sons, yes, seven's a great number, but there's still one left. And that eighth son is the one who's going to be the king. He is the one who is going to be anointed. What does Messiah mean? Do you remember? The anointed one. <clears throat> David is anointed. Here comes Jesus, the Messiah, who is the anointed one. David is the eighth son Jesus is the son of David, the root, the branch from the stump of Jesse. He brings the new eighth day, the anointed one who is the son of God who brings the eighth day to you. When Jesus comes and you burst forth from your tomb, you'll be living the eighth day for the rest of time all on that eighth day. Your week now goes one through seven, one through seven, again and again and again and again, but when Christ comes, it's gonna be one through seven, eight. And that eighth day is gonna be tacked on and it's never gonna end. So that's a really important thing here in this Old Testament reading for today. This idea that David is, yes, he's the youngest. Yes, he's the last son. Yes, he's the one that is the shepherd that works with sheep. Yes, he's sort of good looking, but he's ruddy. And he, but he doesn't look as good as his other brothers. Yes, 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 it's all important. But he's the eighth. Seven are passed by and he is the eighth. It all ties together because everybody, all of these types of Christ, you know, we use this language of type and anti-type. A type always points to the anti-type. There's lots of types of Christ, but only one anti-type, which is Christ himself. David is a type of Christ. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new Moses. He's the new Isaiah. He's the new Elijah. He's the new uh, King David. He's all of this. All of who they are are fulfilled and perfected in his person. So that's just a cool little thing for you to think about as you're hearing these readings, the fact that, uh, the fact that David is the eighth son. And that bears quite, uh, quite a bit of theological significance. So now, with that out of the way, on to the regularly scheduled programming for today. Uh, any questions about last week? Okay. I'm going to give you a couple more comparisons and then we're going to look in scripture uh, for some good examples about things that are good, piety. You always, you want to be pious, you want to have, you want to perform acts of piety, but you never want to be a pietist. Okay, so we, there were some questions. Here's the thing about pious acts, then they are a confession of faith. You, we, when we talk about good works, Good works uh, flow naturally from faith. You don't really think about doing good works. They're just what you do. Uh, when you have faith, works accompany. This is why St. Paul and St. James are not opposed to one another in their epistles with how they talk about faith. 
St. Paul talks all about faith and belief and faith and trust and faith and looking to Christ and following Christ. James talks all about faith and works, and if you don't do works, then you don't have faith and all of this. And for many years in the church, uh, James was thrown away. In the Lutheran church, James was thrown away. In fact, Luther himself wanted to get rid of it, and he called James an epistle of straw, because he said all it is is about works, and works, that's bad, because it's all, it should be all about faith. But what you have to understand is that the way that James and Paul both talk about faith is two sides of the same coin. Yes, faith does fervently trust in Christ, believe in his promises, and follow him. But in doing so, faith also does the things that Jesus does. You can't follow your master but choose not to do any of the things your master does. It's like loving your math teacher but hating the way that your math teacher teaches you and never doing anything the way that your math teacher tells you. Then do you really love your math teacher? Jesus is your master. You are Jesus' disciple. Which means that you do believe him when he tells you, I am the son of God, follow me. Uh, I've got forgiveness of sins for you. I'll feed you supper. You say, okay, yeah, amen. I'll have some of that, please. I agree, faith agrees. But then when he walks, where he goes, what he does, what he says, that's what you do too, because you follow him. That's what it means to follow him. So to believe, to trust in, to follow Christ is also to do the things that he would have you do, because love and obedience are not different. It's a natural thing. So this is faith. The natural outpouring of faith is in works. Jesus talks an awful lot about works, but we never seem to mind when Jesus talks about it. It's just when other people start talking about works, then we get all prickly and we say, no, 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 it's just faith alone. But Jesus never said the words faith alone. That was something else. Jesus talks about faith and Jesus talks about works and he puts the two together. And when Paul and James talk, they're speaking to two different groups of people with two different issues, but they're talking about the same faith. Two sides of the same coin. So, acts of piety then, like good works, are confessions of faith. In thought, in word, and in deed. Now the flip side of that is that when you remember that pietism is more of a mandated holiness of living, when it's thrust upon you, when it's dictatorial in nature, uh, that's when it starts to become a problem. Uh, so it's an attempted confession, not necessarily of faith, but of holiness. You want to show that you're holy. And how do you show that you're holy? I do these things. I'm supposed to do them. I have to do them. So, well, I'm going to do them just so that people can see that I am holy. Okay. But I think that maybe your priorities aren't in the right place if that's your motivation for doing good works. If that's your motivation for uh, performing acts of piety. Like, why do, why do you reverence the altar when you enter into the chancel and when you cross the face of the altar? Is it because you have to do it? Because the Lutheran church says, doggone it, if you don't reverence that altar, you're out! It's because of what it represents. Okay, what it represents, what it is. Uh, you know, I, this is, when I explain it to the kids, listen, the faith doesn't have to be complicated. The problem with theologians, pastors are included, is that they try to make theology way harder than it has to be. They make the faith so much more difficult. And you've got all of these big, long Latin words, and you talk about all these dense theological concepts, like the theologians of the Reformation era who sat around thinking, well, how many angels do you think could fit on the head of a pin? Let's talk about that. Uh, well, I mean, theology doesn't have to be hard. Jesus loves children. He loves children for a reason. Children are often smarter than you are. 
The problem with adults is they think they're hot stuff, and that's what makes them not hot stuff. The moment that you know it is the moment that you don't have it. It's like when you know that you're humble. Like me saying, hey, you know, I'm one of the most humble people that you've ever met, and I'm really proud of that fact. Well, it's a funny joke because then it means you're not humble. See, there's the irony there. So talking about your own humility means you aren't humble. Talking about your own wisdom means you aren't really wise. Um, children are great because they're very intelligent. They're very smart. They're very able to learn. They believe in things that experience tells them are false. How many of you adults here in the room call out to your spouse in the night and have them turn a flashlight on and look under the bed for monsters or in the closet for monsters? How many of you have to have that bottle of monster spray next to your bed so you can go around and ward them away? But your kids believe. The children believe that there could be a monster under that bed, that there could be a monster in that closet, that the things that even though they've never seen a monster, they wouldn't know what a monster looked like, even though every ounce of reason and wisdom and intelligence and knowledge and experience that you have screams, there's no such thing as monsters, your kids still believe in monsters. Children are willing to believe in and accept mysteries. That's a really, really fantastic quality. And it's one that adults do not have. Because we think about everything. Well, now, how can it be the body and the blood? Let's talk about this. And the kids go, it's the body and the blood. So be a child. When Jesus says something, just say, okay. I don't know how it is, but Jesus says it is, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do what Jesus says. He knows better than I do anyway. He knows a lot better than you do. And I'm sorry to say this, but Jesus is a lot smarter than you are too. <laughs> Sometimes the biggest stumbling block is you. Yourself. What you think what you expect, what you firmly believe in. Sometimes those are the things that are the problem. And to be a child is to give that stuff up. Mom and dad said that this is the case. My dad could beat up your dad. My dad told me he once lifted up a car. My dad once told me that Indiana Jones was loosely based on his adventures in college. <laughs> that must be true. I never saw it happen, but he told me, and he wouldn't tell me a lie. Okay? So, it's being a child. This mandated holiness, I believe because I'm told to believe. I reverence the altar because I'm told I have to do it. It's not good enough. This is, you know, when, when we do, when, when we make changes in the liturgy or how we do things at some of our practice, I never will do that without telling you why. The first class I taught here, basically, was a class on the liturgy and why we do everything, because it's not enough to say we're Lutherans and this is what Lutherans do. I don't know why we do it, just that's what we do. It's not enough to say that. You also lose a lot if that's what you say, because there's a lot of wealth in the reasons why things are done. There's a lot of wealth in knowing why the traditions remain in place, because they teach. Everything in the liturgy teaches. Everything in the sanctuary teaches. Every act is done on purpose, intentionally, so that it teaches and confesses. So why do we reverence the altar then? Not because we have to. The way that I explain it to the kids, in simple terms, coming back to the actual point now, if the sanctuary is what we would call the house of God, then the chancel area is like Jesus' bedroom because that's where Jesus really lives. Jesus is on the altar. So when you go, into, when you, go in, you don't just crash through the door and make his house your house. You say hello before you come in. And you say goodbye before you leave. Why? Well, because it's polite. 
and because it confesses that there's actually somebody in the room. If there's no one in the room, it doesn't matter if you go in or out, right? But there's something there. There's someone there. Christ is there. Christ sits upon that altar. So you confess that Christ is there when you enter into his house by saying, hello, you're here. You, you are in this place. And also, for you adults, you know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus is. You know who and what he is to you. Which means that along with your faith, there is an appropriate degree of reverence that follows when you know that you're standing in the presence of God. The example that I used last week was Moses before the burning bush. It's not like Yogi Berra going, hey, Pope. Moses doesn't hear the voice of the Lord and see the burning bush and say, oh, well, hey, God, how's it going? He falls down on his face. God never said, you better get down on your hands and knees before me because I'm God. Don't you know who you're talking to? God just is there. Moses knows who God is, though, and the natural outpouring of the natural confession of faith is manifested indeed. Uh, all right, so it's natural act. Uh, one thing I do want to highlight is this. With piety, you subsist in, you, you exist within the reality that revelation doesn't come from in here or from in here. That revelation comes uh, through Christ. That it comes through the word and the sacraments. That you relate to the Lord through word and sacraments. That the Lord touches you and that you experience the Lord through word and sacraments. Why? Because the Lord works through means. Why does the Lord work through means? Couldn't tell you. Other than because he has chosen to do it. The Lord has said, this is how I'm going to interact with you. And we say, okay, then this is how you're going to interact with us. Now, the converse, the flip side to that is that revelation will come through personal experience. Feeling. Now, this is why I say I don't care about your feelings. I don't mean that to say that I am intentionally going to find every single button that annoys you or upsets you and then go through the service or prepare a sermon like a child in an elevator, <laughs> making sure that I click every single one of those buttons so that everybody's mad at me when the service is done. It's not what it means. What it means is... If you come out of church and you say, I don't really feel like Jesus was there today. I'm going to tell you I don't care. I don't care if you feel like God is there. I don't care if you feel like you've been forgiven. I don't care if you feel the moving of the Holy Spirit. Because I know that God is there because he has promised to be there. Because he never tells me. I know that he's there because he's in the means. He's in the water. He's in the body and the blood. He's in the word of absolution. His word is being preached and where his word is there he is. His spirit is there breathing the word. I don't care if you feel like you're forgiven. The word speaks realities. When Jesus says you are forgiven... You are forgiven because he says so and he makes it so. So if you don't care, how come you go visit um, people who don't attend regularly? I care about my people. I'm not saying I don't care about my people. And, and I don't, I'm not saying that I don't care about your feelings in the sense that I want to upset you. But it's not, we're not going to have a competition of playground insults and I don't care about hurting your feelings. It's not that. It's I don't care about your, whatever your internal movements are that will determine whether or not you think God was there talking to you or giving you gifts or anything like that. Uh, so 
if I absolve you and the first thing you say is, well, I don't think I'm forgiven because I don't feel like I'm forgiven. That's what I don't care. I don't care if you feel like you're forgiven. What does it feel like to be forgiven? Tell me, what does God feel like? You line 10 people up and you ask them, what, is it, what does God feel like? They're, they're going to give you 10 different answers because it's something that is subjective. And the point is, Marla, that in the faith, it's not subjective, it's objective. It's not internal, it's external. You don't do something for Jesus, Jesus does something for you. That's also why I don't care if you've made a personal decision to ask Jesus Christ into your life. Couldn't care any less. Would be for you. Jesus made a private or a, a personal confession for you. Jesus came to you. Jesus brought you into his life. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. Everything is external. The word comes to you. The spirit chucks the word at you. Jesus chucks the body and the blood at you. He throws his hands onto you and absolves you. But it's all coming from the outside. And it starts at the very beginning because, as St. Paul says, your necros, cold, dead on a slab, a puffy raccoon in the river that would burst if you touched it with a stick. That's you. And anybody here who can tell me that they have with their own eyes seen somebody cold, dead on a, slam that's on a slab that sat up and said, Hey, could somebody please come and, and put the paddles on me? I invite you to come put the paddles on me now so that I can be alive. I'll give you a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars, but I don't have to to make that promise because I know I'll never have to give it out. So it's about, the, the point here is that it's about something that's coming to you externally. Now I visit shut-ins and I visit delinquents and I call people uh, because I am their pastor because I want to take care of them, because the pastor is spiritual father of all of you who are my children. It doesn't matter if you're older than I am, you're my children. And I want to take care of you. If you don't see your kids in a really long time, do you call them and see how they're doing? I know that my mother does. If I don't talk to her in a while, I get a phone call just to check in, just, just thinking about you, seeing how you're doing. That's what I do. If I don't see people, especially here where, you know, it, it's almost like missing meals. You miss one meal and I think, okay, well, it's not good for you. You miss two meals and I say, something's, something's up. You miss three meals and I say, okay, it's, you're, you're going to starve pretty soon here. And then I go and I bring you food and check in with you to make sure that you're okay. So I care about my people, and I care about my people, I, I care about making sure that my people get what they need to live, and that they are receiving the, all of the things that are good for them. If they're not here, and if I don't see them, then I go to where they are, and I bring the good things to them, because I want to make sure that they're having the good gifts. But even when I go out to visit somebody, if they say, well, I don't feel like this is the body and blood of Jesus, I mean, you be me, everyone's favorite game. What do you do when you go and you commune somebody or you absolve them and they say, I don't believe that I was absolved or I don't believe that this is the body and blood. And you say, why? Because it doesn't feel like it. I didn't feel like I was forgiven, so your forgiveness can't be the Lord's forgiveness. What do you say? Do you, do you see where I'm coming from with this? Does that... I just can't see you say, well, I don't care. I don't care that you don't feel like Jesus forgave you. Because if, you, if your big hang-up is that you don't feel like Jesus forgave you, that's a you problem. And you better believe that if I hear that, I'm going to take a big hammer and chisel and try to work on that you problem until the light shines forth and you realize forgiveness doesn't, isn't determined by whether or not I feel like I'm forgiven. It's a gift that Christ has given me, and it happens regardless of whether I feel that it happened. I mean, I'm not going to be so callous as to say it like this. Well, get over it. You stink. Uh, believe harder. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say it like that. But I'm also not going to, I'm not going to say, oh, you don't feel like Jesus forgave you? Oh, well, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it does that. Sometimes it just doesn't take. You know, I'm, not, I'm also not going to affirm their feelings. 
Yeah, in that, in that understanding of feelings when we're talking about them. Again, I'm not going to go and say something intent, say something offensive intentionally, and then say, "Oh, your feelings are hurt." Well, I'm not going to apologize because I don't care about your feelings. That's not what I mean. If I, I don't, I never want to hurt somebody's feelings. But when it comes down to the reality of what's happening, we'll do like this. The sky is not blue. The sky is actually flashing technicolor rainbow. Convin convince me that it isn't. But I know it isn't. So you don't care about my feelings then. You don't care about the fact that I think the sky is technicolor rainbow. You're going to hit me over the head with a two by four. That, she said that. I'd never hit that. That's wrong. May, uh, may, well, see me after church. Okay, no, but I, I, I feel like, I feel like, I just feel like the sky is technicolor rainbow. I just feel like the world is a flat disk. Couldn't possibly be a sphere. Tell me it's a sphere. Convince me. I feel like it's a sphere. Just the way that I walk just feels like a, or it feels like a flat disk. Doesn't feel like a sphere. Do you, do you sort of get the point? I don't really care that when you walk it feels like the earth is flat. Because there is an objective reality that exists that is far greater than what you make for yourself in the subjective nature of the heart. Is this helping you to understand what I'm saying? No, I just don't like that statement. <laughs> the, the statement that I don't care about your feelings? Yeah, I don't care about your feelings. I don't care. It sounds very callous. It does sound callous. I'm, I'm saying it in Bible class more for shock value. More it, what? More for shock value. Then it, it accomplished its goal. But, but the point of that is to say that if I absolve somebody and they stand up and they say, well, I don't think it worked this time because I don't feel forgiven. Then we have to sit down and have a talk about, well, okay. Uh, it, your absolution is not determined by what you feel. And if you don't feel like you're forgiven, then come back again and again and again and again and again until the words, you are forgiven, start to ring in your head to the point that you can't get them out, where you say, you know what? I am forgiven. Because your feeling of, you know, you're, you're making for yourself the idea that forgiveness is, the, is, is only uh, effective if you feel like it's effective is dangerous. Bill. Let me take a shot at that. <clears throat> uh, recently, uh, a friend of mine, uh, it, it, who has joined the Reformed Church said, I can tell you just to the minute when I came to faith. I was at a certain church service at a certain point in the sermon, I came to faith. And that's what you're talking about is that feeling. Not recognizing that the Holy Spirit was working. How, how did you get there to start with to be in the church listening to that sermon if the Holy Spirit hadn't motivated you to be there. What you misunderstand is that emotional contact that you had at a particular time. But what you're saying is, I don't care if you had that emotional feeling. What I care about is the fact that you recognize that God working through the Holy Spirit brought you into his family and made you aware that here is where life begins. Yes. <clears throat> I'm not against you having emotional feelings. Uh, when you come to private confession and absolution, when the pastor puts his hands on you and forgives your sins, um, sometimes there is a feeling, like, a, a, like a, a weight's being removed from you. So I'm not saying that there isn't a feeling, and I'm not saying that you maybe won't or shouldn't have feelings, uh, or that when you're here, like for um, 
I don't know, for Holy Week. Often the, the services during Holy Week are very moving. And you can have an emotional response to some of the things that take place during that time. Or that we sing a hymn that they sang at your father or mother or grandparents' funeral, and you just can't help yourself but to cry. I'm not saying that I don't care about the fact that you have feelings, or that I don't care about the fact that you have memories that come back, or that there are feelings associated with something, or that you experience what you believe is the presence of God. What I am saying, though, is I, I, I dislike when what emotional experience you do have replaces the reality of what God has already said and done. So that when Jesus says, this is my body and blood, it is his body and his blood. Um, God feels like bread on your tongue and wine going down the back of your throat. God feels like water in a baptismal font. God feels like hands put on your head and words hitting your ears that are telling you that you're forgiven. God feels like the sign of the cross being put into your forehead. God feels like the smell of incense hitting your nose. God feels like the physical things that God has told you he is joined to and works through because that's where God is. I'm not saying that you won't have emotional responses to things, because you will. I do. But what I'm saying is your emotional responses, your emotional, your subjective feelings don't dictate the reality. You not feeling forgiven doesn't mean you weren't forgiven. So the reality of the fact that Jesus says you are forgiven is more important than whether you feel that you are forgiven. Is that more charitable? Is that more charitable than saying, I don't care about your feelings? Okay. Okay, I apologize for scandalizing. See, this is how much I care about your feelings now. Uh, okay. Rhonda. Well, I forgot what I was going to say because you hurt my feelings. Because <laughs> you picked Bill before me and I had my hand up. He had his hand up earlier. <laughs> I see a lot from up front. Uh, instead of like hurt, uh, I don't care which way I got past it. Like you said earlier, it puts a the radar goes on inside of you thinking, hey, I need to talk to this person. You know, when they come up and they say, I don't feel like I got, you know, what I'm mm -hmm. trying to say, like I yeah. feel like I felt anything, like I received forgiveness. Right. Then your radar goes on. Well, and that, this is Luther's cure to that. You don't feel forgiven? Okay. Well, then come back. You walk away ten minutes later and you don't feel forgiven? Well, then come back. I don't care how many times I have to sit there telling you you're forgiven. Eventually, the words are going to work on you and you're going to come to the reality that, you know what? I am forgiven. And I'll guarantee you that the moment that you accept that reality and you say, I am forgiven, then you will have a feeling. It'll be a feeling of joy and relief. So, so that's... Well, I just need to make a note to self. When I'm on the way home and I tell Daryl, I got nothing on the sermon, I never want to make that comment to you. You can tell me that. No, you can tell me that. I, no, here's the thing. I, I have an office as pastor, but the man who holds the office is still a man. The word that is preached in the sermon is the word of God, and it is being used and carried by the Holy Spirit according to the office. But there is a man who studies and prays and types things into a laptop and then prints out papers and then puts them up there and looks at words. So if you don't get anything out of a sermon, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that you hypothetically didn't get anything out of that sermon, um, but the reality is that because I, there is a man under the office, sometimes you won't get things out of a sermon. Sometimes pastor's gonna preach a sermon that's not quite 
up to whatever standard he maybe had. Pastor's going to preach a bad sermon. Pastor's going to teach a bad Bible class. Uh, Pastor might screw up in the liturgy and turn the wrong way and knock over a flagon. Pastor might do all of those things or put the wrong things up on the board or put a typo into the bulletin or something like that. I mean, I'll let you down if I haven't already. And I really wouldn't believe you if you told me I hadn't already let you down. I've been here too long not to have let anybody down. Um, But Jesus will never give you a bad supper. Jesus will never harm you. Jesus will never let you down. The sermon might be just the worst nonsense you've ever heard in your life. And the hymns might all be the absolute dirgiest of dirges. (laughs) Then nobody knows them. (laughs) But Jesus won't ever disappoint you with the supper. And Jesus won't ever fail when he forgives your sins. So that's always the way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to, if you say that you didn't get anything out of a sermon, well, that's, that's okay. Not every sermon's going to be real high quality. That's what we strive for, but the reality is just they're not all going to be that. But my comment is they're still being Yeah, the, the word is, see, yeah, it's because the word's an external thing, if, whether you're listening actively or intently or just passively hearing, it's still going to work, it's still going to hit you and the spirit's still going to work on you. And it, if you find yourself listening to a sermon and going, well, I don't really like what he's saying, I don't want to pay attention to this anymore, that's okay. Read the little summary in the bulletin. Read what the readings are all about. Uh, look at the stained glass windows and see what's being preached there. Listen to the verba when they're being chanted. Um, and trust that Jesus is never going to let you down. You're going to be fed. Uh, even when things aren't going exactly the way that you would want or hope, or even if it's a bad sermon. Yeah. You are our shepherd. And if there's one little sheep that runs off and gets tangled up in the briar patch, you go after that sheep. Uh, Yeah, I'm ordered to go after that sheep. And so you are caring about these just the way Jesus did when he went after that one sheep. Yes. Pastors ought to, at least. So, no matter how many times that stupid little sheep runs off and gets caught, you're going to try to bring it back. Yes. And I'm not calling anybody a stupid sheep. <laughs> I'm calling you all stupid sheep. <laughs> Equal opportunity offender. <laughs> but, but, see, that's the point, though, that Jesus calls you sheep. Sheep, if you've ever met them, are not real bright. It's not really a compliment when he calls you a sheep. Uh, everybody thinks it's cute to say, oh, I'm Jesus' little lamb. And Yeah, lambs are cute, but they are dumb. <laughs> they need that shepherd. Sometimes just to point to the water and say, this is what you have to drink. Hey, come here. Eat this. Don't eat that. Here. Sometimes that's what the shepherd has to do. And by shepherd, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm not talking about me running up to you and going, What are you doing? Because I won't do that to you. That's callous and crass. But I do care about the sheep. Um, And not only because I'm ordered to, as if I wouldn't care about anybody here, Uh, if I weren't the pastor. Um, But 
I am also ordered to. I'm ordered to love you like Christ loves you because I bear Christ's office. Because I function in the place, by the command, in the stead of, by the authority of, with the working of Christ. So when Christ goes after the lost sheep, I have to go after the lost sheep. Yes. I wouldn't say it like that. Well, no, but and that's, and and that's saying not what you're getting at when you're saying you don't, you don't care about our feelings is like I don't care if you don't feel like you got something out of the service because I know you did get something out of the service because you did get Jesus and you did get forgiven whether you yeah. feel like you got forgiven or not. Yeah, pretty much. But I would say getting getting something out of the service right. is different than saying I don't feel forgiven. So Jesus didn't forgive me because I don't feel it. Um, if you say, if you say I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that I'm forgiven, and then I say, uh, okay, why don't you think you're forgiven? You say, well, because you said I was forgiven, but I didn't feel any different. I don't feel like I'm forgiven. Then we talk a little bit about what it means to be forgiven. But if you say I didn't get anything out of the service, that's sort of a different thing because then I have to ask you, what were you expecting to get out of the service that you didn't get? Why do you come to church? Is it so that you can receive a lecture? I mean, why do you come to church? What are you, ex what are you expecting to get when you walk through these doors that you're then disappointed for not having gotten when you walk out? So it's, it's similar, but it's, it's parallel, but it's not quite the same. I, I, if you say, I didn't get anything, I would probably say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What, but you know, the, the deeper question is, what were you expecting to get that you feel let down when you walk out? Because if you come through those doors expecting nothing but to receive Jesus, and then you walk out and saying, I don't feel like I got anything, that's a really big problem. Now, if you walk in here and say, I was expecting a perfect 11 and a half minute sermon uh, and a service that was exactly this time so that I could get out and watch the Chiefs game and I was expecting exactly this number of hymns and exactly these hymns to be the ones sung and then you walk out and you say, well, I didn't get anything out of that service because you didn't check any of the boxes I wanted you to check. Then we also have another thing to talk about in saying, okay, maybe you need to reevaluate what it is that you're expecting when you come to church. So, I mean, lower your expectations for me because eventually I'm going to let you down. But raise your expectations for Jesus when you come in here. Why, why are you coming to church? Because Jesus is going to come do something to you. Jesus is going to come and forgive you. He's going to feed, feed you. And then he's going to send you out with a hug and a kiss out to go live like a child. Now, if you're not... If you, if you didn't get that out of the service, uh, that can either be on you or it can be on the pastor. If the pastor doesn't ever give you Jesus and you walk out and you say, well, I didn't get any Jesus out of that. Well, that's a valid complaint. I mean, I had a, I had a pastor friend who put something on Facebook. He attended, a, I think it was a funeral, and he said, when you, when you get to the 15-minute mark and then hear the benediction of the sermon and the not once was Jesus ever mentioned in the sermon, you know that somebody did something wrong. Now, Lord forbid that I will ever do that to you, go through an entire service and not actually give you the one thing that my job is to give you. Okay? So uh, on the off chance then that you come and you think I didn't get anything, that's when I would encourage you to take a moment just to say, okay, well, what was it that I was expecting? Because if I come expecting Jesus, I've gotten everything and more. If I come expecting everything that the man pastor does to be exactly 100% perfect with all of these criteria, well, then you're always going to be disappointed and you're never going to leave here feeling like you got something. Uh, a lot of people going back to that, what they want to feel is emotion. And I, I've had, I just had this conversation not long ago with a person who said, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't feel anything. And I said, Pastor Lemke said, 
Church isn't entertainment. It's forgiveness of sins and instruction in righteousness. We're not going to. We're not going to have band music. We're not going to have bells and whistles. We're not going to. It's instruction in righteousness and it's forgiveness of sins. And those things don't always ring an emotional bell like singing "Now Think We All Are God" in the service or. Uh, as Concordia did when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, they, the, the old previous pastor and eight or ten of them came down that aisle and we, and we sang um, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty early in the morning. I can find it, but I can't. A beautiful hymn. Very emotional. Mm -hmm. But that's still not what we should be looking for. Forgiveness of sin and instruction in righteousness, but it was a very emotional minute. Oftentimes people go looking for that emotional high or entertainment, not instruction in righteousness. If emotion dictates reality, then it is not, re it is not reality that you desire, but your emotion that you desire. And then the eyes of faith are not looking at the object of faith, they're looking at self. Emotions accompany and are informed by, but do not dictate, reality. Does that make sense? Yes. Emotions accompany and are informed by, but do not dictate, reality. So you can come here and you can have an emotional experience, but your emotional experience doesn't tell you what reality is. Reality tells your emotions what they are. <coughs> It's, it's, it's how you think about faith, ultimately. That's what it boils down to, or how you look at faith, and how you look at the faith. Is it about you and what you think and what you feel, or is it about the reality of what Jesus thinks and what he does to you and what he says to you and what he says about you? So it, you can be... You can, you, when you look at some of the televangelists, and you listen, if you really stop and listen to what they say, they don't say anything. But it sounds really good, and it makes you feel good. And it sort of pumps you up, and you go, oh, you know, that sounds really good. I like the way that sounds. But, you don't, if, but you, when you start to examine what it is that they're saying and doing, it's not a whole lot of substance. And it's... It's pointing the eyes on what you feel. I like the sound of that. That makes me feel good. Instead of Jesus is going to forgive you, and if you feel like you're forgiven, great. If you don't feel like you're forgiven, well, that's okay. Jesus still forgave you. Jesus forgiving you and the, the uh, assurance of forgiveness and the efficacy of forgiveness isn't determined by what you feel. The way you always tell us is the fact that God is a constant. We always know He's going to forgive us. That's a constant. What He expects out of us is what we in reaction to that forgiveness. So we accept it, reject it, just both of them just don't care. Mm -hmm. If you don't do something, uh, then that's on you. Not God wants you. We can't. God being omnipotent doesn't mean that God can do anything and that he chooses not to. Well, it's yes and no. I, I worry when I hear language like, this is what you've got to do. Because it, when you are a Christian, it's not what you have to do, what you must do, but what you get to do. You don't have to come to church. You get to go to church. Now, of course, do you want to live? Well, then you have to go to church. But that's not even law. Like, well, get to church. Uh, you know, that would be, it's as much law as me saying, if you want to stay alive, then you need to make sure that you eat three square meals a day. Well, is that law? For me to tell you, you have to eat food to live? Or is that just stating the reality? So, 
you know, it, coming to church, you're, you receive, you receive what is given, you, uh, you live life, are strengthened in it, and when you go out, the Lord is a constant, oh, he's a constant here too, but the Lord is a constant, your faith will guide you and lead you, that when you perform your good works, you know that it's not because you are being such a great, nice, kind guy all by yourself, but that you have been enabled to do that. The Lord's not going to kick you going, get up, do that good work. But the Lord is going to say, hey, uh, if you want to follow me, then you, you got to go where I go. And faith agrees with God, of course. Faith says, yeah, okay, that's right. You want me to forgive even this guy, though? And Jesus says, yeah, 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 oh, Okay. All right, so you, this is where we get into this, the distinction between love and obedience because they're the same thing. Because when Jesus says, hey, forgive your neighbor, hey, follow me, and when you follow me, I do these things, so you should do these things, you saying, yeah, I'll do these things, isn't so much, ooh, well, boss put a, boss put a pretty big workload on me for this week. I've got to try and make sure I get to everything so I don't get a demerit. It's not so much that, that you, that you have to do it, but that you are living the faith, that there is a natural outpouring of all of this. But that the Lord is always the constant in the midst of it. Your feelings, this is the other problem with your feelings. They're kind of fickle. They're, they will change. And they kind of go back and forth sometimes. And they like with even your own reason, often cannot be trusted. Which is why it's so great that we actually have a constant that we can look at and say, you know, I don't feel like this is the body and blood. I don't feel like I've been forgiven. But Jesus has said this. And when, and when Jesus says it, it's real. And Jesus never lies. That's a constant. All right. Is this sort of making sense? I love you all. And I, and I do care about your feelings. But I don't want your feelings to be the governing factor behind your faith. I want Christ and his word and his sacraments to be the governing factor of your faith. I don't want feelings driving the bus. I want Jesus driving the bus. Feelings can ride along. They just can't drive. It's like the Irish and the Scottish. They're cousins. And the Scottish like the Irish, but they never let them drive the bus. They can come along, but they never drive the bus. And you can tell my wife I said that too. Because I've said that to her. All right? Okay. I'll see you at the altar.